You are listening to an audio sermon from Fort William Baptist Church. Thanks for joining with us today. We are currently working through a series called Your Kingdom Come, based on the Old Testament books of 1st and 2nd Samuel. This is a book that calls us to action. The text pokes and prods us with the question, Will you submit your life to the Son of God? It's a call to humble ourselves before the King and trust in Jesus. For more information, please visit our website at www.fortwilliambaptistchurch.com. Well, brothers and sisters, would you grab your Bibles? If you don't have one, there should be one in front of you. And turn to the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to be in chapter 30 and 31. With your Bibles open, you'll realize that chapters 30 and 31 bring us to the end of 1 Samuel. We know that 1 and 2 Samuel are one big book, but still, I think it's an accomplishment that we've reached the end of 1 Samuel together. And so our scripture reading starts in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 1. So hear the word of our God. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev, against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and their sons and their daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook of Bezor, where those who were left stayed behind. But David pursued he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook of Bezor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? He said, I'm a young man of Egypt, a servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the the Ketherites and against that which belongs to, to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, will you take me down to this band? And he said, swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. 
And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook of Bezor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth of the, of the Negev, in Jatir, in Aror, in Sifmuth, in Estimoa, in Rakal, in the cities of the Jeremelites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Horma, in Borashan, in Athak, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Melchishua, the sons of Saul. And the battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his three sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled and the Philistines came and they lived in them. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the Tamarash tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come this morning to your word asking that you would feed us, and that you would feed us specifically with your son. 
And so we pray, feed us with Christ and we will live. Would you do that this morning as we look into your word? We pray this in Jesus' good and great name. Amen. The Bible's storyline moves from life to death and then from death to life. So the Bible storyline moves from life to death and death to life. There's two movements in the storyline of the Bible. The first movement is from the land of the living down into a grave. And then the second movement is the very opposite of the first movement. It is a movement from out of the grave up into the land of the living. And you find the storyline across the the whole range of Scripture moving from Genesis to Revelation. And we find this storyline at work in the book of First and Second Samuel. I want to jog your memory. We can go back to how we began this book. And we began with a song in chapter 2, Hannah sang, and she alerted us to this storyline. She sang this in chapter 2, verse 6. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. And as we think about it, we've witnessed this movement in the book of First and Second Samuel. There was Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and they were all destroyed on the same day. There was the presumptuous army of Israel, and they were destroyed in the battle at Aphek. Then there was Dagon, the god of the Philistines, and there we found him prostrate before Yahweh, the ark of Yahweh, and his head was severed and his hands were severed. And then we met Nahash the Ammonite, the serpent king, and he was erased. And then there was Goliath of Gath, and his head was cut off. And truly we can say, the Lord kills. First and second Samuel is littered with a bunch of graves. But the same God who kills also raises up and also brings to life. And we've seen it in the story. From the dead womb of Hannah, the Lord brought forth a son. From the wreckage of Eli's failed leadership, the Lord raised up a new prophet and a new judge. In the face of certain defeat, the Lord brought saviors to Israel. Men like David who brought great victory and and freedom to God's people. In the midst of sin, wicked sin, what did the Lord do? The Lord drew near to his people and he woke them up, giving them fresh faith and, and fresh repentance. And so as we think about it, First and Second Samuel has been a, a series of deaths and resurrections, one after another, after another, after another. And all of these deaths and all of these resurrections ready us for the most important death and resurrection that First and Second Samuel have to offer us, the death and resurrection of the king of Israel. And so in chapters 30 and 31, we meet the two characters that we have been focusing in on for quite some time, both David and Saul. And both of these characters are headed in radically different directions. We're going to look at Saul in chapter 31, and we're going to look at his life, his, his movement of life is this, from life to death. And then we're going to look at David in, in chapter 30, and, and what is the movement of his life? It is from death to life. And so let's work on the text this morning and turn our attention to David in chapter 30 and see how his life moves from death to life. So we first met David back in in chapter 16. He was anointed by Samuel to be king over Israel, and since chapter 16, David has experienced a series of deaths. 
David was seated in Saul's court, and there in Saul's court, he was exposed to the wrath and danger of Saul. The spear was thrown at David time and time again. David was Saul's, one of Saul's military commanders, and, and Saul, out of hatred, led David into trap after trap after trap. David was driven from the court of, of Saul, and out in the wilderness, he experienced hairing, situ, hairy situation after hairy situation. And we can just remember all of the close calls that David experienced in the wilderness. Now, the interesting thing about watching David's life as we've, as we've seen it unfold before our eyes is all of these events and all of these circumstances have been increasing intensity. That The pressure keeps getting turned up on David. The pressure in Saul's court becomes so unbearable that he has to flee Saul's court, and so he goes out into the wilderness for some reprieve. And there he is in the wilderness for a bit of time, but the, the treasure is there as well, and it's building, it's growing. And so what happens? David is forced from the wilderness of Judah and Israel. He has to flee to the land of the Philistines. And so David goes outside the borders of Israel to make his home, but even there among the Philistines, the pressure gets to him. David cannot escape it. And so the old saying perfectly applies to David, out of the frying pan and into the fire. That's what's happening in David's life again and again and again. And this is what happens in chapter 30. After receiving salvation from the Lord in chapter 29, David escapes the Philistines and the predicament he was put in, he is put into a set of far more trying circumstances, out of the, the pan and into the fire. And so look at it with me in chapter 30, verses 1 through 2. The text says this, Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negeb and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. Just imagine that scene for a moment. You've just experienced the salvation of the Lord. You were in this tight spot and somehow, some way, you escaped it, and now you get to go home, and so you travel for three days. You're looking forward to the nourishment and the rest of being home with your family, but as you draw near, you see smoke coming up from the city, and as you come to the city, you realize that your home has been burned, and everything that you've worked hard for to gather for yourself is gone, and then you look around the city, and your family is gone, your wife and your children taken, likely to become slaves in some foreign lands. And so what do we see here? Well, David and, David and his men, they don't get to rejoice after experiencing the salvation of the Lord. They're thrust into the depths of grief. Look at verse 4. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. So we can say that David's heart was broken. His wives are gone. His children are gone. Everything that David has worked hard for is gone. But there's more here for David, more trouble. This whole fiasco throws David into a deep leadership crisis. Verse 6. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. So David is what? He is engulfed. In death. There David is in a burnt city, weeping with his men, and his men are trying to decide whether they should kill him and find a new leader. David is engulfed in death. But there's another layer we have to take notice of. 
And we only notice it if we look really hard at the text of Scripture. Because David's situation mirrors that of Saul's situation. The same vocabulary that was used of Saul's life is now applied to David's life. I want to show you this. I want to piece it together for you. So going back to chapter 28, you remember Saul is in the house of the witch, and the witch conjures up for Saul, Samuel, to speak with him. And Samuel gives him a bad word. You're going to die. And so what happens to Saul? Chapter 28, verse 20, it says this. Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear, and key in on this, and there was no strength in him. There was no strength in him. Now we go to David and we find him in chapter 30. The the city is burnt. The women, the children are gone. Chapter 30 verse 4 says this. David and his men raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. Same language. There's another correspondence as well. Chapter 28 verse 15. So Saul has the Philistines before him and he's got no comfort, no assurance, no direction from the Lord. Saul is completely cut off. And so Saul says this to Samuel, I am in great distress. Now go back to our story, chapter 30, verse 6. Here is David. The city is burnt. His men are contemplating whether they should kill him or not. And David, David is described with these words. And David was greatly distressed. So the text wants us to make these connections. Both Saul and David were emptied of all of their strength, seemingly of life itself. Both Saul and David are overcome with distress because death seems imminent and unstoppable. It's coming their way. It seems, as we read both of these stories, that both Saul and David are men of death. And they're both going to make their home in the grave. And the text is baiting us to ask a question. Is this the end of David? Is David going down in the grave and is is he going to stay there? So what do we say? Well, we can't give way to pessimism as readers of God's word. We have to go back to what we've come to know of God. And we know from the book of 1 and 2 Samuel that this God is a God who raises up. This God is a God who, who gives life. Even more, we can go back to the very beginning of the book of 1 Samuel to Hannah's song. Do you remember what she's saying? Chapter 2, verse 10. She said, God will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And so we go to the text, and this is exactly what happens. David, in the midst of all of this death, it seems that David is in the grave We come to verse 6. It says, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And the meaning of verse 6 is clear. What is David doing here to strengthen himself in the Lord his God? Well, he did what we just did. He went back to the truth about God. He went back to the promises of God. He went back to the plan of God. And he took all the truth that he could grab hold of with his hands. And he grabbed that truth and he, he pushed it on his heart shoving it in there. And as he took the truth and as he shoved it in there, the character, the plan, the purposes of God, he found strength in the Lord. And brothers and sisters, this is the way we find strength in the Lord our God as well. What do you do if you need to find strength in the Lord our God? Well, you go to the character of God, you go to the purposes of God, you go to the plan of God, and you grab as much as you can grab with your hands, and you hold on to it, and you start pressing it into your soul again and again and again, and you will find strength in the Lord your God. 
So back into the text. Well, what's the result of all of this? David strengthens himself in the Lord his God. Well, the result is this, life. Dare we say resurrection. After verse 6, look at the text. David is a changed man. He becomes a one-man dynamo. David is everywhere doing everything. His name, his actions literally dominate the text of Scripture. Just follow me, follow along with me really quick. Verse 7, David calls for the ephod. Verse 9, David leads the campaign. Verse 10, David continues the pursuit even when 200 of his men are too tired to continue. Verse 13, verse 15, David interrogates the Egyptian. Verse 17, David attacks. Just listen to the text. And David struck them down from twilight until evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. Did you hear that? It's as if David fought the whole war by himself, and David struck them down. He's a one-man dynamo after this resurrection event. And we come to verses 18 and 19, and, and David rescues everything and everyone. Listen to the text again. It says, David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives, and nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David did it. He was strengthened in God, and he did it all. And so great was the victory that David accomplished that when they brought the the loot back, when they brought the spoil back to, to Judah, his men said in verse 20, this is David's spoil. And I think they were happy about that saying that, rejoicing in their leader. This is David's spoil. But the action isn't done. David still has energy left. After the battle, David does what? He, he quells a quarrel between his men and he lays down the law in verses 23, 24, and 25. And the chapter ends with David on the move. He is sending gifts to all the elders of Judah. And I'm not sure you can find as you study the scriptures in a more action-packed chapter than chapter 30. David is strengthened by the Lord his God. And then what happens? David is on the move everywhere doing everything. So what can we say about this? Well, we can say this. David is on a path from death to life. That's David's story. He's moving from the grave up into the land of the living. And the movement is clear and apparent. It doesn't matter the circumstances or the troubles or pressures. God is working in David's life, raising him up and strengthening him. And he lives. So that's David's story. That's chapter 30. So now we need to switch gears and we need to look at Saul's story. And Saul's story is completely different. Saul's story is from life to death. From life to death. And chapter 31 is not pleasant at all because death reigns supreme and it overcomes absolutely everyone who appears in the chapter. If you're in chapter 31, you're dead. The army of Israel, the sons of Saul, Saul himself. And chapter 31 is particularly discouraging because we meet the demise of Saul and we just need to listen to the text of Scripture tell us the story. So chapter 31, verses 3 through 4. The battle pressed hard against Saul and the archers found him and he was badly wounded by the archers. 
Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he great, feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell on it. What are we learning here about Saul? Well, as we meditate on the life of Saul here, we realize that this story, his death, is his whole story in a nutshell. Saul has been falling on his own sword his own life. Saul's story has been a story of self-destruction. Ever since he disobeyed the word of God, he was destroying his own life and digging his own grave. You see, there's a piece of application right here. This is what it means to sin against the Lord our God. Sin at this basic level is an act of of self-destruction. It is an act of turning away from the God of life, the source of all life, leaving him behind, and then digging your own grave. And that's Saul's story here in chapter 31. He destroys himself, and that's that's what Saul's been doing his whole life. But the text doesn't end there with Saul's death. We get these odd reports about Saul and his body. His body's plundered. His head gets cut off, his armor gets put into temples, and his body gets fastened to a wall of the city of Bethshan. Then finally, we hear this report, there's some men of Jabesh-Gilead, and they're, they're valiant men, they're brave men, they're strong men, and so they, they go all night, and they rescue the bodies of Saul and his sons, and then they bring them back, and they burn them, and they bury them under a tree. That's pretty strange. But I want to take notice of these strange things. I want to point out to you three matters. First of all, Saul, even after his death, is dishonored. Saul doesn't get a proper burial. His body is what? It's exposed to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, which if you're a student of God's word is a big deal. Deuteronomy chapter 28 verse 26 tells us this is a sign of God's curse and fierce anger. So here we see a sign that God is at work in the midst of of Saul's death. We know it from Samuel's words, but we see it here as it's, it's narrated before us. The covenant curses of Israel are falling upon Saul. Second thing to take notice of is Saul's head. His head is cut off, and this gets us thinking about the story we've listened to. There was Dagon. Remember Dagon in the temple of the Philistines? The Ark of the Covenant was there, and Dagon fell over, and his head was severed. It reminds us of another story as well. It reminds us of David and Goliath. David threw the stone, and then he took Goliath's own sword and cut Goliath's head off, and this gets us thinking. There are two characters before Saul that had their heads cut off, and now there's a third, and Saul is now joining the ranks of Dagon and Goliath. Not the company you want to keep. And third... The saints of old were commonly laid in a cave after death. But since Saul's body had been so desecrated by the Philistines, he was burned with with fire, and then they took his bones or whatever remained of them and buried them. And what do we see here? Saul was thoroughly humiliated by his enemies. Everything taken. And this is how Saul's story ends. It ends in death, and not just a simple death, but a tragic one, a shameful one, a one filled up and overflowing with God's wrath. 
And so we have both chapters in front of us. We've got David in chapter 30, we've got Saul in chapter 31, and we can see the storyline of the Bible at work. David's story is what? It's a story that moves from death to life. And we see Saul's story, and it's a movement from life to death. We can simply put it like this. Saul dies, and David lives. And at this point, I just want to take a step back from the text, and we need to start reflecting. We need to start thinking these two chapters through. What, what does the death of Saul and the life of David mean for the story of First and Second Samuel? We can broaden this question out even more. What does the life of David and the death of Saul mean for the, the story that the Scriptures are giving us, this big, grand narrative? Even more, as we think about our own lives, we're sitting here thousands of years later. What does the life of David and the death of Saul mean for us? What does this matter? Two reflections. First reflection is this. Those who fail must die. Those who fail must die. And so we have to say that the death of Saul was necessary. Saul's kingship failed, and it failed because of his disobedience to the word of God. And there is, according to the word of God, only one solution for Saul, and that is death. Those who fail must die. And this was laid out for us in the book. Go back to 1 Samuel chapter 12. Samuel is preaching to Israel after Saul has finally been installed fully as the king of Israel. And Samuel begins to preach these words. Chapter 12, verse 14, verse 15. He says, If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But, you've got to pay attention here, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. You hear that. What does failure bring? It means that the Lord will be against you. And, and Saul, Samuel gets even clearer about this at the end of his sermon. Verses 24 and 25, he says, Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, but if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. And so we come to chapter 31, and, and Saul is dead, and what do we see? We see that God, that Yahweh is completely committed, wholeheartedly committed to this logic. Failure brings death, and Yahweh will see it through. He will kill everyone who fails. We have to understand that this logic does not only apply to Saul, but it applies to everyone. It applies to Saul, but it also applies to the whole nation of Israel. If Israel rejects the command of the Lord... If Israel rebels, if Israel acts wickedly, they too will die. And so if you keep reading your Bibles, we're at the end of 1 Samuel, you read 2 Samuel, and then you move on into 1 Kings, and you keep reading to the very end of 2 Kings, what will you find? You will find this, Israel as a whole turns away from the Lord. And what does the Lord do in response? Well, we see that he is committed to this logic. And so what does he do as a whole? He grabs Israel and he throws the whole lot of them in a grave. The whole nation dies. That's the first reflection. Those who fail must die. Second reflection. The Lord starts afresh by raising up. And so we see this in the text. We see it in First and Second Samuel. As the Lord is killing and removing and clearing he, at the very same time, is doing a work of grace. He is raising someone new up. 
We go back to the beginning of the book of, of 1 Samuel, and the Lord is, is in this work, doing this work of, of taking away Eli and his wicked house. He is removing them, destroying them. And what is the Lord doing at the very same time? He is raising up a new prophet and new judge. He is bringing Samuel up. And this has been going on in David's life as well. The Lord is removing Saul, clearing him away, chapter after chapter after chapter. And this whole time, what is the Lord doing? He is raising someone new up. And so the Lord starts fresh by raising up. Now we have to understand that both of these reflections, they go together. In fact, they cannot be separated. They cannot be rent asunder. And I want to give you an illustration to help think about this. Pretend for a moment that you go buy a, a plot of land and you have a goal for a plot of land. You want to plant crops and you want to raise crops and feed your family. But before you can get any crops from that piece of land, you need to go to it and do what? You need to clear it because it's full of thorns and, and thistles and dead wood. You've got to clear it before you get something for good, raise something up. And this is what's going on in First and Second Samuel. There's this plot of land and the Lord wants something from it. Before he can get anything from it, he's got to clear it. And so what is the Lord doing? He's clearing these, these wicked lines, Saul and Eli, and then he is raising up new, Samuel and David. And this is what God does throughout history. We can put it a couple different ways. You can't have the new unless the old is dead. Or to put it in the terms of our story, you cannot have King David if King Saul is still reigning. There's only one room for one king to reign over Israel. Now just let that settle in for a moment. We've got those two reflections in front of us. What does that mean for us? Well, I think it means a dilemma for us, doesn't it? As we think about these two reflections, they put us in this situation where we're stuck. We want the new. We want to be among the living. More than anything else, we want to be that plot of land giving forth life and health. We want to be with David and his men experiencing resurrection. But here is the problem. Well, we want all of that good. When we take a hard look at ourselves, what do we find? We find that we're actually among the old and the sinful. We start to inspect our hearts, the plot of land that's within us, and what do we find? We find thorns and thistles and all of this dead wood. We look inside of ourselves, and what do we see? We see this Saul-like heart formed inside of us. And we're following the Scriptures. And when we follow the Scriptures, we have this realization, we're going to be demolished. Those who fail must die. What does that mean? We must die. You must die. We all have to die. That's how Yahweh works. Well, it seems that we're stuck. It certainly feels like we're stuck. We're with Saul. We see Saul in us, and we know the story of Saul. It's a story from life to death, and there's nothing for Saul but a grave. And we ask, is that all that there is for us here? But we need to stop right here, and we need to hear the gospel truth, because the gospel of Jesus Christ solves this dilemma 
for us. Because in the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ, he comes to our story, and what he does is this. He wraps both of his great arms around both of these chapters and both of these kings, and he takes them unto himself. Because the Lord Jesus lives out both of these stories portrayed for us in chapter 30 and chapter 31. Both movements of the storyline are applied to Jesus. Jesus' story is a story from life to death and from death to life. Just work it through with me. This is how we have to read scripture. Saul was a disobedient king, and because of his disobedience, he was killed for his sin. Now take a trip with me out to Golgotha. And so we're outside the city walls of Jerusalem. And what do you see there taking place at Golgotha? Well, we see a cross. We see an execution taking place. We see death. And, and I ask you, well, who do you see there? Well, you've heard the story. It's Jesus there. He is on the center cross with a criminal on his left and a criminal on his right. And I tell you, keep looking there. What do you see? Look above his head. What does the placard read? Well, the placard says this, the king of the Jews. And make this connection. There on Mount Gilboa, Saul died for his sins. And there on Golgotha is another king dead under the curse of God. And brothers and sisters, here is the wonder of the gospel. Jesus entered into the story of Saul, and he took the story of Saul to himself. In fact, he entered into the story of Israel and took the story of Israel to himself. Even greater, he entered into the story of humanity and took the whole story to himself. But there's this one great difference. Saul died for his sins. Israel died for their sins. All humans must die for their sins, but Jesus never sinned, not once. Yet he freely and willingly entered into the story and bore up all the covenant curses of God. But that's not it to the story. We have to make another connection. Remember David. Again and again and again in the story, David is in the midst of the death. It seems like he's going down into the grave. There he is. He's going to die. What does the Lord do every single time? The Lord intervenes and he raises him up. He gives him life. He strengthens his anointed. And now travel with me again. And this time we go to an empty tomb and we we look inside the tomb and we, we look carefully and there's actually not very much to look at. Why? Because there's no one there. The tomb is empty. There's just grave clothes. Jesus has been raised up. And here we're faced with the great news that after God cut down and destroyed sin in the person of his son, he raised up his very son to rule and reign over everyone and everything forever. Do you see it? It's the gospel that solves our dilemma. The gospel moves us from life to death. And so brothers, sisters, hear this and believe this. When you go to Christ, you enter into the grave of Christ. Paul says this in Romans chapter 6, verse 4. He says, we were buried with him. Even more, when you go to Christ in faith, you enter into and have a solid experience and earnest share in Jesus' resurrection itself. Do you get the good news of the gospel? Say it again. Brother, sister, if you've gone to Christ, the death sentence has been carried out and you are free, forever free from the story and person of Saul. Hear the good news of the gospel. Saul is dead and Christ is dead and you are dead in Christ. So what does that mean? It means you are free from the life and rule and reign of sin. It is gone. God has cleared the field. 
And you have been cleared if you are in Christ Jesus. And so hear the imperative of the gospel. Live today as a free man and free woman. Live from the tyranny of sin and all that reminds you of Saul's life and ministry to Israel. You are free because you are dead in Christ. We can go on with the gospel, can't we? If you have gone to Christ, hear this piece of good news. You have experienced the resurrection power of God. You inhabit a greater story. You inhabit the story of Jesus Christ. You have been grafted into him. Just think about the story of David. David's story is moving from death to life again and again and again. God comes and rescues. And that's the narrative shape of our lives now. We are on this movement up out of the grave with Christ, trending towards, moving towards, experiencing life and more life and more life. So brothers and sisters, hear the imperative of the gospel. Live like a resurrection person. Live like David did in chapter 30, experiencing the strengthening power of God. Be a man, be a woman of life because you belong to Christ Jesus himself. So what does all of this mean for us? I think it means this. It means encouragement, doesn't it? In Christ, our story has been changed. Better yet, we have been changed. Before Christ and outside of Christ, we were with Saul on a path from life to death, and that was going to be the end of the story. We were going to be there with Saul on Mount Gilboa, no future. But the good news of the gospel is this, Christ has taken us down into the grave with him. And he did not only take us down in the grave with him, but he grabbed hold of us and he ripped us out of the grave as he arose himself. And now we are on the other side of the grave and we get to walk with Jesus in the newness of life in the land of the living forever. So be encouraged. That's your story. From life to death and death to life. And so as Christians, what do we do? We, we tell ourselves the story again and again every day because that is who we are. We are dead to sin and we are alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so tell the story again and again because it is the only story that matters. Even more, it's the best story. So let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so thankful for this great story. There is nothing that compares with the great story of Jesus, death and resurrection. And we are so glad that you have grafted us into Jesus and we share in all of him. We share in his death, we share in his resurrection, and we ask for your grace now. We ask for your help now that we might live in light of this story, live in light of the truth of who we are now. We pray this in Jesus' great and glorious name. Amen.